Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On this week's show, we're talking to a real legend of the music industry, the one and only Chris Blackwell, founder of Island Records. Blackwell founded Ireland on a love of the music of the Caribbean, his stomping ground of Jamaica in particular, and you'll definitely know this about him, he signed Bob Marley and the Whalers, who became synonymous with the rhythms, accents and politics of the island. But that was after signing Jimmy Cliff, Roxy Music, Cat Stevens, Free, Traffic, John Martin and Nick Drake. What a fabulously mixed roster of talent from across the musical spheres. It was after Bob Marley's final London show at the Crystal Palace Bowl in 1980 that Blackwell thought, yes, he would, after all, jump in that cab and head to a little pub in Herne Hill near Brixton to see an ambitious little Irish band who'd named themselves U2, and he signed them too. Blackwell was also instrumental in turning Grace Jones from a model into a very major recording artist who became synonymous with Ireland's good vibes in the 1980s. Blackwell's island life could have been so very different, however. He was born into gentility and brought up in the last vestiges of an almost Edwardian colonial Jamaica where his family drank, smoked and quipped in the same company as Errol Flynn, Ian Fleming and Noel Coward. It was after failing at a few more supposedly becoming and boring jobs that Blackwell hit on the idea of supplying records to jukeboxes and the burgeoning sound systems of Jamaica and then thought, maybe I could even try making those records. The rest is happy musical history. Chris Blackwell has just published his excellent memoir called The Islander and he came in to talk about his incredible life and times. Chris, it's wonderful. It's an honour to have you in the studios here at Midori House. I've just finished The Islander. It is a magnificent sort of totem to you, to Island Records, but perhaps most of all to the island of Jamaica. And the heat wafts off the page and the excitement of the island across all the decades you've had dealings with it wafts off the page as well. I'd like to start, if I may, kind of in the late 1950s we'll talk about growing up and all the wonderful things all the wonderful people you met and your family and all the rest of it and island records but i want to zero in at the end of the 1950s on the sound systems a friend of yours had the concession for Wurlitzer jukeboxes you had a mini or, or something a small car and you bombed around jamaica sourcing records to fill these jukeboxes up and these jukeboxes became sound systems this is kind of the launch of Jamaican music as perhaps we know it today. Tell us a little bit about the excitement of that, of finding that music in the late 1950s. How it kind of started becoming a producer, as it were, because there was a band playing at the Half Moon Hotel near Montego Bay. And I had a job at the Half Moon Hotel teaching water skiing, which was actually... <laughs> I rather this is how everyone it. gets into record production, obviously. That's right. <laughs> so the band was playing one night. This band were actually were brought in from Bermuda. They weren't Jamaicans. I was listening to them, and I thought they sounded really good. Mm-hmm. And when they stopped, I, I went to them and said, boy, I think you guys sound really good. I'd love to record you. Now, I didn't know anything about recording anybody. <laughs> I'd probably had a couple of drinks and why I said that, so you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, but... That's what happened. And they said, well, we'd really like to do that. So I said, well, yes, let's, we'll do that. So two or three days go by. And of course, I'd f- kind of forgotten about it. And on the third day, one of the, one of the guys came up to me and said, uh, 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 what about that recording idea? And I said, yes, of course, of course. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot it. I'll do it. I'll, let's do it. We'll do it tomorrow. That's what I did. So I rented a Volkswagen bus and we all drove in from Montego Bay into Kingston. And um, I'd already booked ahead a studio because I knew the, the guy who owned the studio and owned the pressing plant, etc. I knew him. So I drove in and then we went in and the band went into the studio and I went into the control room, the sort of room above with the owner of the studio. So he was doing it, working the th things. And, and I you was were keeping it cool. You obviously knew exactly what you were doing. <laughs> well, I knew, I knew that what I was trying to do, you know. So the first tune was played and the leader of the band which I didn't neglect to say, the, band, the leader of the band was blind, in fact. So he looked up and said, what do you think? And I, I didn't know quite what to say. And he said, um, would you like us to record it again? And I said, yes. The moment he put his hands down to play, I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's having that element of sort of control or veto over proceedings, these wonderful creative things that are happening just through a pane of glass away, I suppose. That hit home immediately, that, the sort of satisfaction, the slightly addictive nature of, of being with these kinds of people, these creative people, I suppose. Yes, exactly. I loved it. So that's really how it started. Then from what I would do is I'd go to different shows when there were any shows where there'd be somebody, maybe the, the main singer or the, the, a lead person, and they'd, they'd book other new guys who were starting to sing, etc. I'd go to different cinemas, which is where they'd have these uh, mm -hmm. shows. And on one of them, I went. There was this one guy who was singing, and I thought, well, this guy's got really got a great voice. He sounds like Brooke Benton. At that time, Brooke Benton was one of my favorite singers. So I went backstage after it was finished, and I went to him, and I said, oh, I, I thought you were a really good singer. i I'd love to rec record you. And he said, oh, yeah, that would be great. And then another person was just standing a little bit away, you know, and he came over and said, well, what about me? I'd like to make a record too. And then another person <laughs> came and said, what about me? So I said, okay, so we'll do it with all three of you. And it wasn't the three were working together. They were just three individual guys who were there doing their gig, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So we went in the studio, and the first record was called um, Little Sheila. Yeah. And that was this guy called Laura Lakin. So that was the first record. And I put it out, and it went to number one. <laughs> Not because it was the best record ever at the time, but because it was the first record that Jamaicans heard a Jamaican singing. Well, my baby has left me and I've gone away. When my baby has left me and I've gone away. You know my baby has left me. Because before that, the music you heard was American music, which would be coming from New Orleans or from St. Louis or, you know, Chicago and things like that. And um, the next record went to number one. And the third record 
went to number one. So he, so I had three <laughs> three artists in the top ten. This is from kind of chancing your arm, having a couple of rums one night at the Half Moon Hotel in Montego Bay. Exactly. Sort of having this sort of success. I mean, this is great stuff. This is the sort of story that allows oneself to believe in oneself at least a little bit, Chris, isn't it? And it then, is. And, yeah. the, and that's feeling in the studio. There's such a... What runs through the book is that passion for being in a studio with musicians, kind of tapping into their vibe, but not yeah. stamping on their feet. You know what I mean? Right. Dancing with them, but not standing on their feet, letting yeah. them lead that thing. It feels to me, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it feels like there is that there is something of that first recording session, that, that, that artist that you met at the, at the Half Moon Hotel at the Montego Bay, that sort of led like the words through a stick of rock, right through Grace Jones, U2, Bob Marley in the way that's as well. Correct. Passion. Because that's where it started, you know. Yeah. It's, it started there. And then, as I said, I kind of forgot about it. They reminded me. We went and we did it. <laughs> and then we the, the, found these guys. And then, you know, it moved along. It, it really moved along. From, At a lick. From, from there. So I started to record other people. I started to do other records of uh, other songs of the same people. That studio thing, I mean, you've worked with so many amazing different artists. We'll have heard about that in the introduction. I'm sure you'll name-check them during our interview, Chris. How do you, how do you create a feeling in a, in a studio? Is there a... I, I know that early on in the book you talk about bumping into Miles Davis in Greenwich Village and actually being in a studio with him and not kind of knowing what to say, but as long as you didn't... As long as you could kind of pick up on the lingo and a bit of the vibe of some of these great musicians, that was sort of getting halfway to some respect. Is there a trick to that? And if there is, are you willing to share it with well, our listeners? Because no. it's the $64 million question, I suppose. I met Miles Davis through a songwriter in New York. And I went to one of the, he went to Columbia Studios, Columbia mm-hmm. Records. And he was re- recording. I can't remember what it was, but it was everything of his, in my opinion, was genius. So I can't remember what this was. But I didn't speak to him then, or he didn't speak to me. I just came and mm-hmm. watched and listened. I got to know him later because he was playing in in New York and um, I would go to the club quite a bit and we'd kind of known each other, not become good pals or anything. Nodding buddies. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, he thought I was kind of funny in a way, you know, when I was this white guy, you know, hanging around there, you know. So there was something really special about him. I mean, I'll never forget that. But when he played with the band he had, the band were incredible. It was really magic. And that was incredibly exciting, you know, seeing that and hearing that and feeling it and being able to actually talk to the person afterwards and something, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it pulled me in and gave me, I guess, more confidence and started to, you know, so I started to sort of grow, basically. There's something really special about being in an artist studio, in a studio with musicians, whatever it might be, but when you're seeing that moment of creation, you feel privileged, don't you? Even if they're people you know super well and people that you're, you know, they're on your roster and you you own the record label, but there's something deeply yeah. intimate about that there's something so honest about someone yeah. playing you their new song or something that hasn't even been finished yet yeah. there's something vulnerable about artists in that moment and yeah. it's something that 
you don't talk about it in the book so much, but I guess it's there's a way of handling that that makes you mm. a nice person to work for, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, is that I mean, you know, that's a trick of running what has been one of the most successful record labels in the world, Chris. Is that <laughs> being someone that people want to work for, right? Yeah. Was there a f- sort of secret Blackwell formula to that? Well, firstly, I was a fan of music. If I didn't feel something was working, I would say something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it could be that, you know, one of the instruments is a little bit out of sync with the other things, or it could be it's just one of those days where it didn't really come together and things like that. But in general, I, I did not interfere with it because I guess it's because I start started really as a fan. I wanted to hear what they did. If it was something which went a little bit off that you haven't heard before, that could be something which was what made that record sound really special because it was different, you know. So I always believed in that. I never wanted things to be in the the box, you see, because I, I, I couldn't read music. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that I was able to produce records where I knew what the music was going to be. While yeah, you weren't doing done. notation with these guys. You were supplying the materials and giving them some kind of fairly back seat advice, I'm assuming. Well, the, front seat well, advice. Front seat. Chris I is mean, going. They, Chris is. They, they were, he's sitting on top of the carriage. He's got the whip. He's got the top hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. Um, Miles Davis was was really t- to me uh, an incredible field to sort of be hanging around him. You know, I got quite cocky with him one time. I, s- I said to him, "I said, why do you play so many bad notes?" You know. <laughs> yeah. And and he said, "Well, because he tries. He always tries to play w- what he feels he can, what he's trying to reach, rather than what he knows he can do." So, in other words always sort of reaching out. And um, right after I'd said that, you know, I, I was in a club with him and there was a, a, a singer singing. And um, and then when the singer was singing, I started to tap my foot a lot. And he said, it's a cool down, cool down, and tap your foot so fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was the kind of, the main kind of conversations I had with him over, over hanging out with him other than when, He'd take me in his car and drive me around. I, I, I think you know, I was, I was sort of funny to him. I think yeah. you know, here's this odd white kid who doesn't know what he's doing anywhere, but you know, loves the music and things like that. So, I think that was a great part of my life. That part, being, 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 you know, close with him. Yeah, it's magical stuff. We dropped in our parachute in the late 1950s, Chris, in Jamaica. I wanted to kind of just rewind a little bit back to your fascinating childhood. A really interesting, privileged, colonial white childhood in Jamaica where your um, parents brought you up, sent you to Harrow to school. You came back and at this point Jamaica was a was sort of on its last vestiges of a, as a sort of colonial playground, I suppose. Mm-hmm. The likes of Noel Coward, Ian Fleming famously, whose golden eye you eventually bought people will know that and know the pictures of that beautiful house and its grounds and all the rest of Mm -hmm. it that is also an upbringing hanging out with miles davis is is learning a different kind of cool and a different Mm -hmm. sort of assuredness but this upbringing what did that give you because you ended up doing something that was so 
different to the upbringing that you were perhaps being trained for the, or, the, or the life that you were being trained for. You became <clears throat> someone very cool and you came from quite a sort of strict, but I, I understand a very loving place. How do those two things go together? I think, well, they were there. I mean, Noel Coward bought a house there, very mm -hmm. close to where my mother's house was, and they became very good friends. I'd see him a lot, and he'd come and have lunch or dinner and things like that. And he was, was a genius. He was a genius. He was somebody that literally he'd get you laughing, and you had to leave the room because you, you could just couldn't help. You know, it was it was just it was just you know what it is when you're just laughing and you just can't breathe. Yeah, you know? yeah. He was incredibly funny and very sharp. Very, he was kept his distance, but he was he was an incredible man to know. Really great. And in Fleming as well. I mean, these are sort of. Ian Fleming had a, obviously a very, very interesting war that became the, the sort of fodder for his James Bond novels yes. and all the rest of it. But these, this feels like a sort of Edwardian world turning into a 20th century world. You ended up working with the most amazing artists, musical artists, that seemed so divorced from that world. I wonder if having a, a foot in this earlier world, what did that give you to, to carry that through? Is it, is it simply very unique to you? Well, honestly, I think Jamaica has a magic. Yeah. I mean, I really do. I think Jamaica's blessed. I mean, all these people were, were just talking about, they all were in Jamaica. Yeah. Do you know? And it wasn't that it was like it was a sort of tourist haven. It was just somehow the people landed there and fell in love with it. And it's really beautiful, Jamaica. Jamaica has the mountains go up to 6,000 feet, 7,400 feet, in fact. And um, it's very varied. And the characters, the people of Jamaica are f fantastic people. They really are. They're unique. Their music has gone all over the world. With some help from Island Records and the kind of people that you signed, we should talk, of course, about about meeting and working with Bob Marley, someone that is, is now perhaps posthumously, sadly posthumously, his identity is so bound up in Jamaica. You know, it's kind of like you think of a Jamaican, you think of Bob Marley and vice versa. I mean, at the time, he was interested in politics, in peace on the island when it was starting to get troublesome on the island in the, in the mid-'70s and stuff as well. But tell us, I think people would love to know, Chris, how you first came into, into contact with, with Bob and about that relationship, because again, that was you know a man that was becoming this huge rock star, essentially, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And you kind of steered him in some pretty wise directions. I mean, a man who's obviously very headstrong, but you know, did it feel like there was some sort of? He was certainly under your wing to to a great extent. Well, he and uh, the other two members of his the Whalers, band, yeah. the Whalers, was uh, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, and they had gone to Scandinavia to do some work on a film and it kind of crashed and they didn't have the funds to get back to Jamaica they only had the funds to get back to London and somebody called me and asked me if I would meet with them to see if I could do some kind of deal with them which could give them the funds to get back to Jamaica and I said sure
call this kismet in the book, I think. Yeah. Where suddenly these dudes only had half an airfare. They're sitting in your office. You're like, yeah. ah, we could work something out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, that, that, that's really what, what we did. What, I, I did say that I thought they needed to change their music a, l a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought they should be, I said, I thought they should be more making music to reach the, the mm -hmm. rock music audience rather than just keeping with reggae. Mm -hmm. And um, Peter Tosh wasn't too happy about it. Peter Tosh wasn't too happy about me anyhow. He didn't like me too much. You say that in the book, yeah. And I wonder, well, that's a tough thing to have an animus with someone like Peter Tosh who... Well, his reputation precedes him, yeah. but you have to tough it out. To a yeah, but it didn't worry me at all. I, I liked him. Yeah, a lot. It, it was. I never had any worry about that. It wasn't sort of. He, I could see from his point of view how I, I, I was how a bit of a nuisance, <laughs> you know. So, but yeah, it just worked that Bob kind of agreed with going in that direction, and then I. I worked with him in producing that first album called Catch a Fire. Yeah. Which I used a rock guitarist from... This is Wayne Perkins. Wayne Perkins, yes. Which is amazing. So this, I love this little bit in the book. And the book, by the way, is for people listening, is full of these lovely little moments of happenstance. You call it kismet, the fact that Bob Marley and the Wailers sort of mm. rocked up in London and came into your office and all the rest of it. But running into Wayne Perkins who was, was he part of the Swampman? Was he part of the Muscle Shoals crew? Yes. So, you know, these kind of virtuosic Southern American blues players, essentially, mm -hmm. who kind of set the standard for everyone. And he was just, he was cutting something in Basing Studios, your island's studios. Yes. He was walking down the spiral staircase. He said, oh, do you mind I'm just laying down a lick on this new guy, Bob Marley's record? He was like, sure thing, Chris. And the re I mean, that's bananas because that I listened to a lot of the music that you mentioned in the book while I was listening to it and kind of going, oh, yeah, you're right. And I hadn't, you know, the guitar lick, which is kind of quite a Western inverted commas, or it's quite a rock or bluesy guitar riff. Yeah. And that's Concrete Jungle, isn't it? Seems, seems, like, seems like it was always meant to be there, but it wouldn't have been there without a little bit of a nudge in the small of the back on your behalf. Right. right. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Bringing him in to open it up that way, it just opened it up. Mm. You know, it could have not worked, but it, it did work. And and I, I have to tell you that I felt it was going to be huge. But I was uh, about uh, two or three weeks after the record had come out, I was in America touring with somebody, maybe in traffic, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And I rang back to ask how it was doing. And... Uh, they said, oh, it's done about a thousand records. I said, a thousand records, that's all it's sold so far. The guy, David Betridge, who was running Island Records at that time, said, he said, that's, that's pretty good for a reggae record. And I was kind of devastated because mm. I thought it was going to be huge. But those first six weeks, it didn't do anything. But by the end of the year, it had got a following. And by the end of two or three years, it got a quite a big following. And the rest, I suppose... His history with Bob Marley, people know the story of that. But 
you've always worked with and i think ireland has had a wonderful reputation for allowing artists plenty of rope but let's talk about grace jones yeah i don't want to l- let you leave this studio chris blackwell without talking about grace jones <laughs> of course grace jones to many people sort of came from studio 54 she came from this ultra glamorous beautiful kind of superhuman looking person yeah. how did she come into your orbit how did she come to ireland records it seems so obvious that she should be on your label, that she should be under your wing in a certain extent. But it was far from that. A person who I was uh, having lunch with, who was English, he was a, a, a writer, mm-hmm. Nick Cohn. He said there's there's a Jamaican girl who's doing modeling, but she's got a good voice. I, I don't know how he knew about it or whatever. And he told me I should check it out. Mm-hmm. So I listened to it. And, it was, and, and, and a couple of days later, the New York magazine came out. And it was a picture of Grace on the cover. And when I saw the picture, I thought, wow, my God, she looks fantastic. you yeah. know. So then I decided to track her down to see if I could um, get her to come and make a deal to record. She had already got some people who were in the clothing business. She'd managed to talk them into financing her first record. So, and that first record was taking quite a bit of time. It was a, a DJ who was producing it, and it wasn't really moving very fast, as it were. And the people, Mount Park Kettle, we called them a bit, because you know <laughs> they, they, they were extremely nervous about the fact how the the, the record which. Grace had said to them she thought it would cost about 20000 was now at about 40000 and they were really in a state. One of them rang me and asked if I would like to listen to the record. So they came in to see me. They put on the record. It's called Portfolio, at first album. Well, I don't know if you've heard the record, but if you've heard the record, the first about four minutes of it is just a drum machine. That's it. So I was thinking, what the hell's it going on? They sent all this money and all the, they've <laughs> driven all the way in from out of town to come and play this to me. And they're playing me just a, a drum machine, you know. But then when her voice came in, I thought, my God, this is incredible, you know. Yeah. What an incredible voice and what an incredible look she has. She's got everything going for her. So I bought the rights from them. That was the happiest day of their life because they, they really <laughs> you took on the debt. Out. Yes, and 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 we went on from there. But you, with someone like Grace Jones, I mean. People will probably know her reputation definitely precedes her as well. Another island artist whose reputation precedes them. You've got a knack for this, for finding people that are almost don't need in a campaign, don't need, they need, who, who jump out of the speakers in your car stereo, who jump off that album sleeve, it seems like that. How much of that excitement can you keep under your hat, Chris, when you sign someone that you really feel has got that superstar potential? How much do you let them know that? <laughs> I never forget that, you know, I, I can't play anything I or anything like that. So I have no no real qualifications for doing what I was doing. I was really somebody who was a fan, and I think I was blessed with good in, instincts. And um, 
And so I, I think I could hear something and and feel this was something that could really happen. So then it was a matter of how, what would you need to do to make that happen? Part of it, of course, would be, you know, the packaging. I used to get a hard time. People used to say, why you have all these fa fancy album covers and things like this? Well, like Catch a Fire, for example, the yes. Bummer and the Whalers, which had that famous Zippo, the top lifted off, and it was like a Zippo lighter. That's right. That must that, that's right. A bankruptable thing for a record <laughs> company to do. Yes. <laughs> nice one. But it, but it, <laughs> yeah. it brings some attention. Yeah, it, yeah. it sends a message that there's something worth, something's going on here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's really was always my feeling. If the cover is great and the cover is fitting the music and fitting the artist, you know, not putting a cover which the artist would be not comfortable having. So I was always, or I felt I was always sort of working for the artists. I mm. really was, because I'm a fan. I love know. that you put it like that after yeah. such a career that you taught you approach it. You've always approached it as a fan. And I can believe that. And I know mm. what I kind of I feel like I know what that's like to a, a molecule of, of your career. But you know what I mean? It's just loving that thing, feeling yeah. lucky to be in the room with some of these people. I've found some of the moments in the book where you write very intimately about recording certain records John mm -hmm. Martin in particular, which was at a, at a farm you bought uh, um, in Berkshire and the creation of that record, which is a, a sort of haunting thing. But I really wanted to speak to you very quickly about Nick Drake and about artists who become huge posthumously. There's a, a person, American guy, called Joe Boyd. Yeah. But he's one of the most brilliant people in music. And he is the person who turned me on to Nick Drake. And Nick Drake came to see me when I had my offices on one uh, Oxford Street. Mm -hmm. And um, when he came to see me, I liked him. He played something for me. I thought it was great. But I told him that I didn't think that it, I could really help him at that time. And the reason was, at that time, what I was really focused on was traffic, mm -hmm. free, spooky tooth, you yeah. know, the, the rock. rock. Yeah. Now, Joe Boyd recognized what he was doing, but Joe, Joe Boyd was basically given an offer to go and do the music for Warner Brothers Pictures. So he left England, and he left me most of his catalog, which was Sandy Denny, um, Fairport Convention. But that was all... Very different to Traffic and Free and all that yes, roster, yeah. But that was all Joe Boyd. So the thing with Nick Drake, I told him to come back in six months, came back in six months. It was later on that we put out the first record, which I thought was, was incredible. Yeah. You know, it was brilliantly produced. This is Five Leaves Left. Yeah, that's right. You know what Five Leaves Left means? No, no. In the reefer, in the reefer packs, yeah. at the end it would say Five Leaves Left. Oh, in the Rizzler? In Rizzler. <laughs> See, I didn't really associate that with Nick yeah. Drake somehow. I love that. Yeah. So true to island form. <laughs> <laughs> and just finally, I want to bring it back, Chris, to Jamaica, mm -hmm. which feels throughout the book and throughout your life, if I may say, it feels like it feels like you leave Jamaica, you see the world and you come back to it so many times. It's your kind of magnetic north. You love the people, you love the, the sort of mm. nature of the island and all the rest of it. Is that sort of 
not wanting to labour the point, but is that does that feel like the real the real production genius, the real kind of engine behind the success of you and Island Records? Well, I, I you say I was very sick as a child, so I didn't go to any children's parties at, at, at all. The only people that I spent any time with, other than my mother and grandmother, and now and again my father was the staff, because I was living in a very big, fancy house. Mm. And there were about 12 staff. There were gardeners, grooms, uh, you know, people doing all kinds of, of work there. And those were the, the people that I spent all, all my time with. And, you know, I start to absorb the fact how very different my life was from their life. So... And think, you know, I, I always wanted to try and uh, do something to help. Well, you can communicate. Mm. This is what you did. It cut through. You can cut through stuff. Mm. You did it with music. You seem to be able to do it with people. People that shouldn't have liked a sort of posh white boy <laughs> <laughs> ended up sort of having you as a very close confidant mm -hmm. as well. I mean, that's that must be a great feeling. How did it feel putting that full stop on the end of the book? And is it like kind of looking in the mirror? Is it that, does it feel like that? In a way, it is yes, because it's, it's definitely touching, reading some of the thing, some of the things, and you know, and it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, we have teased our audience, I think, with tales of Bob Marley, Grace Jones, some of the amazing acts, and I think there's a there's a line in there near the beginning of your book where you say you cut that Lance Hayward record and you and you say, well, it sounded a little bit. If you wanted to a, a sort of time capsule of what it was like in the Half Moon Hotel or in a small hotel in Jamaica in the late 1950s, then that's exactly the sound of it. But if you want anything else, then look at the rest of our catalogue pretty much. And I was like, that's fine by me. I want to be, I want to be in that hotel in 1958 <laughs> dancing and having, you know, drinking a couple of rums. Perhaps with you, Chris, it sounded like a good place to be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for telling us the story of you and of Island Records, Chris. Thank Baker. you. Thank you very Thank much. You. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Chris Blackwell. His new book, The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond, is out now and that is published by Bonnier. And if you're interested in finding out about another sunny, creative hotspot with a slower way of life, pick up the current July-August issue of Monocle, in which we take a deep dive into the art and culture of Marseille. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound. Thanks for tuning in.